Well, there's two games that I remember playing as a kid. Uh, one is called Follow the Leader. The other one is called King of the Mountain. Uh, I don't know if you've played those games. Follow the Leader, of course, is when someone does something. You know, say, everyone stand up. Come on. Everyone stand up. Say, I don't know, shake your... Right leg like this. Shake your left leg like this. And then everyone sit down. And that's follow the leader. Like that's that's the game, right? Follow the leader. One person leads, everyone else follows. The other one, King of the Mountain. Uh, does anyone know King of the Mountain? Same as King of the Castle. Yeah, King of the Castle, top of the hill, all that sort of thing. It's basically where you want to get to the top of the mountain. Maybe it's the playground, maybe it's a slippery dip. And whatever you do, you're going to push people off to get there. You're going to do whatever you can, trample over people to get there. Um, Two different types of games. Follow the leader, king of the mountain. And I reckon they kind of illustrate the way we can do life, don't they? Uh, We can either follow our leader, Jesus. It's a game about humble submission, actually. It's saying, no, there's a leader, there's someone we're going to follow, there's someone who we're actually going to listen to in life. Uh, The other one is king of the mountain. It's kind of a game of proud domination. Uh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to trample over other people to get there. Uh, These two games, I think they can actually sum up, actually, maybe how we're living at the moment. Are we following Jesus as our leader, uh, looking to him for the way he lives, we'll follow him, or are we trying to make ourselves our own little king, Uh, not wanting to follow him, just trying to do our own thing? And quite likely trampling over people, pushing people off slippery dips all over the shop uh, because we're not living that well. I wonder what your life is looking like at the moment as you try to follow Jesus. Which one might you be identifying more with? <coughs> uh, to answer that question, uh, to think about what it actually means for us to be followers of Jesus, what we're going to do in this first talk, and I apologise, it will be a bit longer than normal talks, um, we're going to work our way through Mark 1, 1 to 15. We're going to work our way through these first verses in Mark's Gospel because there we're actually introduced to see who this Jesus guy really is. Who this king is. That's what we learn. We see that Jesus is actually the king. He's the one that we call to follow. We learn about this good news about him, this thing called the Gospel. We're going to pull that apart. Often I think in Christian circles we we use words like grace and gospel and we never really unpack them and say, well, what, what is that? What does that mean? are those sorts of things. As we do that, as we work through Mark 1, we're actually going to see the way that even Jesus, who is the king, the way he lives is one of humble submission. He lives in obedience to his father. That's Jesus. And by the time we get to verse 15, we actually hear these words. Uh, We hear Jesus say, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. They're going to be key words for us this morning. Uh, As we look at this first talk, we're going to see that following Jesus actually means that. It means repenting and believing the gospel. You want to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus? You want to know how to follow him as your leader? It means doing that over and over and over again. Repent and believe the gospel. Uh, But before we get to that, Uh, We're going to have a look at who Jesus is. Uh, If you've got your Bible in front of you, open it up to Mark chapter 1. 
Uh, because what we see in this very first verse of Mark 1 uh, is a great introduction of who Jesus is. Mark 1.1 says this, says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's, there's a lot packed into that first verse. Uh, there's four things I think that actually jump out and give us our attention. Uh, the beginning, the gospel, the Christ and the Son. Uh, they're the things that we're going to look at. Uh, the first word, the beginning, uh, we actually see, when we open up Mark's Gospel, Mark actually starts this book quite deliberately. He starts it like the Bible starts, doesn't it? In the beginning. Uh, when we open up Mark's Gospel, we're meant to read, there's going to be a new beginning with this guy, Jesus. Something's going to happen. Something's going to be new. Something's going to be world-changing. There's going to be a new beginning with this guy, Jesus. Something is going to happen that will deserve our careful attention. And as we keep reading through verse 1, what we see is that this thing that we meant to pay such attention to is actually called the gospel. Uh, it's a word that we might not use that often, although sometimes as Christians I think we throw it around and we don't think about it too much. Uh, we're going to unpack exactly what the content of the gospel is as we get to verses 2 and 3. But just for now, notice that the word gospel, it simply means good news. Uh, that's what it means at its heart. In the original Greek, uh, it combines two words. It combines the word angelos, so an angel or a messenger, someone who brings a message. And then it's got a prefix on the front of it, you. Uh, so the word gospel is euangelion, euangelos. Uh, so when you put them together... The word gospel, it actually means joy-bringing news. That's what gospel is meant to do. When we hear this gospel, this gospel about Jesus, it's news that's supposed to bring us joy. Uh, it's announcement. It's kind of this history-shaping. Uh, it's meant to make our hearts leap with joy when we hear the gospel. That's the kind of news that the gospel is. It's, it's the kind of news that you know, it would make you dance in the streets. Uh, because it's that good. Like when war is over. Uh, it's not just any old news. It's great news. Uh, it's not just a Bible word. In the ancient world, uh, uh, the word gospel was used, euangelion. Uh, Paul didn't make it up. Uh, this was a common word back then. In the ancient world, when Greece was invaded by Persia, for instance, uh, when the Greeks won the battles of Marathon and Solonus, what they did was they sent gospelers. They sent people with news of great joy. Evangelists. That's where we actually get the word evangelist from. Uh, gospelers. People would go after these battles and they say, we have fought for you and we have won. It was a declaration of victory. The battle is over. You are no longer slaves but free. That was how the gospel was proclaimed in everyday life. The gospel is an, is an announcement, you see. It's news. News of something that has happened, something of such great importance uh, that your status will be changed forever. Uh, no longer in war, but in peace. No longer slaves, but free. It's a kind of news that brings you joy. Uh, the gospel actually, uh, one type of gospel got declared in Sydney uh, after World War II, uh, after the Japanese uh, 
surrender. People were going about in the streets and they were saying, war is over. I've got a video to show you. Um, that was pretty large. I need to press play down here because it won't do it. This sort of thing. But this is the kind of response that the Doubts in the streets when war is over. Um, if you've ever been in any of those streets in Sydney, it's actually hard to imagine what sort of joy must have been going on in those moments. Apart from the old dudes sleeping, I mean, what's, what's with him? every now and then we need to sleep, but that's cool. Um, yeah, I wonder how you feel about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, does it have that kind of resonance with you? Makes you want to dance in the streets? creates that kind of joy. We'll think about that a little bit in a moment. Um, as we keep working through uh, Mark 1.1, 1, 1, yeah, we're still only halfway through the first verse. Uh, the second half of this first verse in Mark actually makes some really big claims about who this Jesus guy is. Uh, firstly, it says he's the Christ. Uh, that means he's the king. Christos was the Greek word uh, meaning anointed one. Uh, meaning Messiah, another way of referring to the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament. Uh, throughout the whole Old Testament, the prophets speak of this one who would come, this king who would come, who would make an end to Satan, sin and death, who would restore God's world 
and make it right again. Uh, that's who the Messiah will be. And Mark says, this is Jesus. He's that king. He's the Christ. He's the one who will rescue mankind from their sin. He will overthrow suffering and death once and for all. Now, this is not just any old king Mark is talking about. This is the king. Jesus is the king. He's God's appointed king. Uh, and more than that, he says he's actually not just a human, he's the son of God. He's God himself, come to dwell with man, come to fix our problem of sin. Uh, this is God who's come to reign on earth as our new king, God the son, come to bring this joy and peace. It's a pretty impressive first line when you look at it, isn't it? I mean, I, every now and then I get introduced in crowds and I never get like this kind of an introduction, you know. <laughs> It's going to be a new beginning. It's going to be news that will create joy for the whole world. He's the king of the world. I mean, maybe if you're on Titanic or something, king of the world. Um, He's the son of God. That's who Jesus is. Amazing. What an amazing introduction. Uh, But what I want us to do now is actually, as we we work our way through Mark 1.1 and move into verses 2 and 3, what we actually see next is we actually get to see what this good news is. Uh, verses 2 to 3, they actually unpack what the gospel is for us. Let me read these verses for us. It says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That's uh, a quote from the Old Testament. And you probably read that and you think, that's not the gospel. Um, I mean, isn't, isn't the gospel that Jesus died for my sins and raised my hope? That, where do you get that from that? I mean, and I want to say that actually this, this is the gospel. This is Mark actually, what, it's, what Mark has done with this quote is he's actually told the gospel. He's just kind of hidden it a little bit. Uh, see, what I want you to see is that Mark wants to show us by, he's actually, this isn't just one quote, this is three quotes all combined together. Mark's actually showing us here in this little introduction that the gospel was always expected. It actually flows out of Old Testament history. Uh, And now that Jesus has come, it's been made crystal clear. See this quote, which is attributed to Isaiah, uh, it's not actually all from Isaiah. Uh, Does someone want to look up Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3? Uh, and just tell me how much of this verse actually comes from Isaiah 40. Give you a bit of work, make you do some work. Everyone can flip there if you've got a Bible. How much actually comes from Isaiah? Yeah, so Isaiah 40 verse 3 is where the verse comes from. Yep. A voice among calling, in the desert prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Yeah. So it's just the last part, isn't it? Um, seems that we've missed we've missed the first two bits of the quote. Um, so what you have to do is you have to go, well, where does the rest of the quote actually come from? Uh, where's where's Mark pulled this from? And what you find is, and when you've got, you know, people who write Bible commentaries, it makes it a lot easier. You don't have to go and read through the whole Bible just searching for these words. Um, 
But what Mark's actually done is he's actually put together three different quotes, the first line, this line, and then this line, uh, from different stages in Israel's history. Uh, so what you see is that actually that this bit, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, is from Exodus chapter 23. Uh, you go there and it reads this. It says, Behold, I am sending my messenger before you, before your face, to guard you on your way and bring you into the land which I have prepared you. First bit comes from Exodus chapter 23. So the context of the quote here is actually the Exodus, that pivotal moment in Israel's history, uh, that, that moment where they went from being slaves under Pharaoh to being led to being free, where God took them out of the land of slavery in Egypt, how he kind of passed over their sins. Remember that Old Testament story in the Exodus where they, God passed over their sins when they put the blood of the lamb over the doorposts, their sins were passed over, and God said, I'm going to make you my people. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Uh, God led them out, and where did he do? He took them into that promised land of joy. That's where the Exodus lands up, ends up. Uh, that's the first clue of what the gospel will be like. Mark's pulled this quote from in the middle of the book of Exodus, and also say that the gospel will involve something like that. Uh, it would be like what Israel experienced when they got led out of that land of slavery and were given freedom and were taken to that land of joy. Uh, that's the first clue we get. Their enemies are overthrown and they are now God's people. The second part of the quote uh, actually comes from Malachi chapter 3. Malachi 3 verse 1. It reads this, it says, Behold, I am sending my messenger and he will pre- prepare the way before me. Uh, here, the messenger, as you keep reading through Malachi, the messenger is actually one like Elijah, uh, one who will be like Elijah. In Malachi 4, 5, uh, we find this clue. Uh, it says that his message, the message that he will bring, it will be a message like the one that Elijah will bring, that prophet from the Old Testament. I don't know if you remember the story of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 21. Uh, Elijah is the one, the prophet, who was actually credited with going to the very worst of the sinners. Uh, the worst king that Israel ever had. Uh, in 1 Kings 21 verse 25, it says, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like King Ahab. And what was Elijah's message to him? Elijah went to him, the worst of the sinners... And he said, repent. Repent, turn from your evil, humble yourself, and God will forgive. That was his message. The clue here is, you see, that the gospel will be news of forgiveness for even the greatest of sinners. No sinner can be excluded from the gospel. Those who humble themselves and repent, well, they will find God's forgiveness. That's the second clue about what the gospel will be like. As you keep reading the very last verses of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it says this, it says, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day when the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So what we learn from Mark quoting Malachi in this little quote, uh, is that the gospel will involve heartfelt repentance. Uh, Repentance that will lead to restoration. 
Uh, families will be healed. God will call his enemies his dearly loved children. Uh, that's what we learn from Malachi. And finally, the third part actually is from Isaiah the prophet. Uh, the third part of the quote comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which Ruth read out for us earlier. Uh, in chapter 40, if you know the book of Isaiah at all, uh, chapter 40 is a turning point in the book of Isaiah. Uh, the book of Isaiah is 66 chapters. You can actually split it into two clear stages. Chapters 1 to 39, it's about God's judgment on the proud and the wicked. Chapter 40 to 66 is about how God will restore those who humble themselves. Uh, you can split the two books. It can be summed up as the proud and the wicked, verse 39. Chapter 40, verse 1, God says, Comfort, comfort my people. God will bring comfort. And the rest of the book is about God's deliverance of the humble. Uh, from chapter 40 onwards, the book is filled with joy and happiness. It's just these visions of prophecies of a restored world, of this servant who will come and make the world better, though he himself will be slain. Uh, it, there are some amazing prophecies of how the world will be one day filled with peace and joy. Those pictures that we get in Revelation 21 and 22 that we've been looking at in CU, those pictures of that restored world, they're actually just repeating what's in those latter chapters of Isaiah, um, that God will restore his world. And it seems to me that this is why Mark introduces the whole quote under the heading of Isaiah. Uh, he wants us to know that the gospel must be understood in light of this promise of salvation, uh, that the gospel must be read in light of the whole story of where it's heading, this hope, the wonderful news, this glorious picture of a restored creation that the servant of God will bring. Uh, these three quotes, when you put them together, they tell us the gospel that we know, don't they? Uh, the good news that because of Jesus' death, because of his resurrection, our sins will be passed over. Uh, because of his death in our place, we can find forgiveness. That we're no longer slaves to Satan, sin and death. No, we're actually freed from their power. Uh, we learn that taking hold of this gospel, it involves heartfelt repentance. It means turning back to God, humbling ourselves. Uh, we learn that it's good news, uh, that our hope uh, is life in a world to come, life where there's no more sin. No more suffering, no more pain, no more death. That's good news, isn't it? Jesus has done that for us. Jesus has conquered. So let's all go and dance in the streets. That's the kind of news it's meant to be. Joy-bringing news. Repentance, freedom, hope. Do you believe it? Do you feel the joy of the gospel? Does it make you want to dance? If not, then maybe we haven't understood the context. Maybe we haven't understood why it's such good news. See, the gospel is only good news when it's proclaimed in the context of judgment, isn't it? Uh, of God's righteous judgment for sinners. I can't imagine those people that we saw in the streets of Sydney jumping for joy after hearing that news if they didn't actually realise the seriousness of the war that they were actually in. 
Uh, if they if their lives weren't weighed down with the burdens of that war, there's no way that being released from it would actually make them jump for joy. Likewise, hearing the gospel, hearing the news that our sins are forgiven, it's only good news when we know how desperately we actually need this forgiveness. Uh, when I went to buy Laura's engagement ring, coming up just on 10 years now, I remember the jeweller um, was kind of laying out these different diamond rings. And uh, I didn't have a lot of money back then, and so I was looking carefully. But one of the things he did, which I think was a little bit sneaky, but it made sense in the long run, he got this black piece of felt, and he laid the diamond rings on that. And when you've got a black background, that shiny diamond just shines all the more brighter. And uh, that's what the gospel does when we see it in the right context. Uh, when we see that we have eternal life, that we have that hope of joy coming in the future, it shines all the more brighter, doesn't it, when we understand that we in our sin actually deserve God's separation and hell. We need to actually understand the, the dark background, don't we? Part and parcel of the gospel is the news of judgment. Uh, we can only appreciate how good the good news is when we actually understand how bad our situation really was. Uh, our sin is so offensive to God that we deserve his wrath. We have all uh, just shaken our fists at God in our sin. We've all rebelled against him. And we deserve his righteous judgment. We deserve his separation. We deserve hell. But the gospel shines all the more brighter. The more we actually comprehend that, doesn't it? Well, that's why John the Baptist actually comes doing what he's doing. Uh, John comes bringing a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, his message in verse 4, Repent and be baptised for the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, what does it mean to Repent. Well, to repent means to do a U-turn about your sin. Some of you probably did U-turns on your way out here as you got lost. Um, what you did was you realised you were going the wrong way, you came to a conscious decision about that, and you went, we have to go the other way, and go back this way. That's actually what um, repentance is. Repentance isn't just realising you're going the wrong way and feeling sorry about it and continuing down that sorry line. It's actually... Going, no, we need to turn. We actually move on a different path, a different direction, a God-glorifying path. We no longer continue down sin. We actually start living the life Jesus wants us to live. That's what repentance looks like. Uh, and that's why I think John actually combines this message of repentance with the symbol of baptism. A baptism actually symbolises what repentance looks like. You know what baptism is? The act of being plunged under the waters? It signifies, get Andrew, it signifies that we die to our old sinful self, that old sinful way of life. That is judged as we drown under that water. And then we are lifted up, raised up to new life. Now that's what baptism signifies, that we are given new life in Christ and that new life we have is life that we live for Him. 
It signifies that all our sins have been washed away, we've been washed clean. It's a symbol of the Christian life, of what it means to follow Jesus. We die to sin and we live for Christ. The reason we do that, the reason we need to repent, is because all of us, each one of us, have sinned. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. What the Bible tells us so clearly is that something in our culture, something that our culture never will. Uh, the Bible tells us that all of us, every single person in the world, is essentially bad. You don't like to hear that, though, do you? All of us in our hearts are bad because we sin. Our culture will never tell us that. It'll actually tell us the opposite. It tells us that essentially most people are good at heart. Sure, there's some bad people. Maybe Hitler, maybe Pol Pot, they're bad people. But most of us, your average Joe Bloggs, well, I'm a good person, right? Uh, God will accept me, right? On that last day, we'll have a beer together and we'll work it all out. I've had people say that to me. When you look at it, most people think they've probably done more good than bad, and so life will be okay. But the Bible says something very countercultural to that. The Bible actually says that the paradigm of good and bad isn't the right paradigm. Uh, that's not the way that God sees it, because we're actually all bad. Uh, we're all sinners. So that paradigm no longer applies. The paradigm that, that the Bible actually teaches us, it's not good and bad, it's proud or humble. Uh, God sees people as either being proud or humble. Those who are still living in pride, sinning against God, selfishly living for themselves, rejecting his offer of life through Jesus, proud or humble. Those who have humbled themselves, admitted they've sinned, repented, said, God, I am sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. Please help me to live for you. It's countercultural, isn't it? Our culture says, don't dwell on sin. You're not that bad. Christianity says, be honest. Be honest about your failings. Christianity says, you are more sinful than you ever dare imagine. But at the same time, it says, you are more loved than you could ever dare believe. Uh, Pour your heart out to God in Him and you will find peace. Humble yourself and you will find forgiveness. So our culture... It doesn't want to be honest about sin. You know why that is? Because it doesn't know what to do with it. Uh, People say, don't dwell on the bad. That'll just make you depressed. Don't think about it. You're a good person, right? Jesus says, it's not about being good or bad. It's about being humble. Come to Jesus and I will take that sin from you. I will give you rest. Come to me and I will give you forgiveness. You don't need to prove yourself to Jesus. He accepts you as you are, as you humble yourself before him. While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. That's how you deal with your sin. You don't hide it. You repent. You don't try to tolerate it. You let Jesus take it. That's what he came to do. As we keep reading through Mark 1, uh, we see that John speaks of Jesus in verse 8. 
Uh, he says, one is coming after me who is greater than I. My repentance, the repentance John is doing, that baptism with water, John says that's just an outward sign. But what Jesus is going to do, the repentance that he brings, well, that's with the Holy Spirit. It's a different one. That will actually change our very hearts. So the repentance Jesus brings will be the work by the work of the Spirit. It will, con- it will come with full conviction. Uh, if you're a Christian person, you'd know something of this conviction, I'm sure. Uh, you do something sinful, something you know doesn't line up with God's word, and you feel bad. Actually, you can feel it in you. Uh, Jesus talks about this in John chapter 16, if you want to look it up later. Uh, you did bad, you feel bad. And you should, because you did bad. That's God's Holy Spirit actually convicting our consciences. The Spirit of God, you see, he takes the Word of God and he convicts our hearts. He tells us to repent and start following Jesus, start living the way we should. I've had people say to me, they say, Steve, I read the Bible and I just don't think it's working. I say, why isn't it working? And they say, well, I read it and I feel terrible. I say, it's working. It's working really well. That's the Spirit of God taking the Word of God and showing you that you need to repent. That your life isn't actually lining up with the way Jesus is calling you to live. You're not depressed. You're convicted. God's Holy Spirit is calling you to repent. He's renewing your mind, Romans 12 style. He's telling you to turn from your sin, to put it to death. To start following Jesus, to start pleasing God with the way you live. And as followers of Jesus, that's what we're supposed to do, isn't it? We're supposed to live like he did. Uh, There was a saying back in the first century, uh, in Jesus' day, uh, people would say, may you be covered with the dust of your rabbi. I don't know if you've ever heard that saying, may you be covered with the dust of your rabbi. Uh, Rabbi means teacher. Disciples were to follow so closely behind their teacher that the, the, the dust of the teacher's sandals would fall onto them because they were following step by step with them. Uh, as the teacher kicked up dust, the disciples would follow in their footsteps. Uh, and what we learn from verses 9 to 12 as we keep moving through Mark chapter 1 is that what this will actually look like for us as his followers today is it will look like a life of humble obedience because uh, that's what it actually looked like for Jesus. As we walk behind him, as we follow in his footsteps, we call to walk humbly in obedience to God. Uh, in verses 9 to 11, uh, Jesus comes to be baptised, not because he needed to wash away sin, but to reveal his identity. As he comes up out of the water, the Spirit of God is poured on him, just like the kings of the Old Testament used to have that oil poured on their head to anoint them to say, this is the king. Uh, This is a moment where God's Spirit is poured out to say this. God is saying, this is our king. Jesus is the king. He will be the king who is actually led by the Holy Spirit. And we actually see that he is, don't we? Uh, He always walks in obedience. He's always in step with the Spirit. Uh, God the Father says, You are my beloved Son. 
With you, I am well pleased. This baptism actually confirms Mark's opening line, doesn't it? This is God's king. This is God's son who he loves. As soon as we've had that confirmation, immediately, verse 12, Jesus, this king led by the Spirit, is led out to be tempted to see how he's going to go with this struggle of sin in his life. Uh, The question you ask is, will Jesus do any better than the rest of us? How's he going to go with this? Uh, I don't know if you saw any of that Bible, you know the Bible on TV last year, it was around then. Um, One of the episodes, they actually recounted this moment, uh, the temptation of Jesus. It gets fleshed out a bit more in Matthew chapter 4. But I thought they actually did a really good job of actually showing the two paths that Jesus could have taken uh, in that moment of temptation. And what they did in that scene was they actually um, flashed forward to the moments that Jesus, that you know, in that moment choosing humble obedience to the Father or actually giving in to the Satan, where those paths would have gone to. Um, so, so when Satan says to Jesus, Bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. I'll give you authority and power. You'll be great. What happened was they, they showed this little fat flash forward to where that could actually lead to, the two paths that Jesus could have taken. Uh, one was kind of the king of the mountain path. Uh, they flashed forward to Jesus sitting on a royal throne. You know, People were bowing down to him. He had this gold crown on his head. People were serving him and rubbing oil on his hands and his feet. And he was just, I don't know, eating grapes and all that sort of stuff. That was the earthly glory, king of the mountain path. Then they flash forward to the other path that Jesus could have taken. The path of humble obedience, the path of the cross. And there Jesus wasn't sitting on a comfortable throne, but he was hanging on that wooden cross. Uh, He wasn't wearing a golden crown. But he had a crown of thorns digging into his head, representing that he was taking the curse of sin on himself. Instead of people bowing down to him and serving him, they were hurling insults at him. They were mocking him. Instead of the gentle oil being rubbed into his skin, into his hands and his feet, thick metal nails were being pounded into his flesh instead. They were the two paths that Jesus could have taken. Uh, Jesus could have claimed that earthly mountain. He could have gone for selfish glory now, taken that sinful disobedience path, the easy way, the way of the world. But he didn't. He chose the path of suffering. chose the path of humble obedience, sacrificial obedience, to the point of death for the sake of others, for the sake of us with glory to come. Jesus did that, you see, because he believed the gospel. Uh, He knew that earthly glory wasn't enough. He knew that being the king of kind of one mountain, the mountain of Jerusalem, uh, that would never actually compare to the joy of the gospel where he would be actually reign over the whole world. Jesus chose the latter, didn't he? He followed his Father's will. He walked the way of the cross. He suffered and died for us, for his disciples, for people like you and for me. 
And the call for us is to actually follow him on that same path. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It means walking the way of the cross. Not that we must die on a cross like he did, but that we will live a life of repentance, of humbling ourselves in obedience to the word of God. That we would crucify our sinful selves and follow him on that path of obedient service. Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. It's no longer I who live, no longer my sinful, selfish self that lives, but Christ who lives in me. Verse 15 of Mark 1, this Christ turns up and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So let me ask you, how are you going with that? How are you going with repenting, with putting the sin in your life to death? Not manage your sin, not accept your sin, not just tolerate it, but kill it. Put it to death. Turn around from it. Start back on that other way, that God-glorifying path. Kill it. Because Jesus died for it. Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. That's actually how we put sin to death, isn't it? Uh, by believing the gospel, by actually letting the gospel win our affections, by seeing Christ crucified in our place, by being so overjoyed that by the gospel, by letting it stir up in us that news of great joy that we actually would, would just want to dance for him. We wouldn't actually want anything else to get in the way of that because we would be so overjoyed with what he has done for us. I think a major reason we actually keep sinning, we fall into sin, is that we forget the wonder of the gospel, isn't it? Uh, In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it talks about that great exchange that Jesus made for us. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a great exchange, isn't it? He takes my sin and I get his righteousness. He takes my death, I get his life. He takes my separation, I get his salvation. My disobedience, his obedience. My unholiness, his holiness. He did that for us. He swapped everything for us. My sin passed over, my hope secured, my life never-ending joy. Friends, don't try to be the king of the mountain. Now, Jesus has conquered that mountain, so follow him. Uh, be humble, be honest about your sin, repent of it. Be forgiven and believe the gospel. Find your joy in it. That's how we follow him. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, help us this day, this week, this year, to be people who are deeply honest about our sin. Father, help us not to try to cover it up or to tolerate it. Help us over and over and over again, help us to come back to the good news of the gospel that Jesus has taken our sin for us when we simply come to him and repent. And we ask you to take it for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for those amazing promises in the gospel. We... We put our trust in you, have life, 
both now and forevermore. We just pray that you would help us to see this so clearly. Thank you for this weekend that we can come away together and help us, Father, to encourage each other. Help us not just to go out now and talk about normal things of the world, but help us to, yeah, just dwell on the goodness of the gospel and what you've done for us in Christ. Let's pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.